Welcome to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauk. Our broadcast is produced by Dana Brown. Today we are joined by Scott Atkinson, a professor of English at the University of Michigan Flint. Scott is the new editor of the online magazine Belt, which focuses on writing in the Rust Belt Midwest. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hey, thanks for having me. Scott, why don't you tell us, first of all, about your roots in Michigan? I understand that uh, you have some deep connections to the state. Yeah, um, that's kind of interesting uh, where I grew up in this and how I kind of came to Flint. Uh, I grew up in a small town um, up Durand, which is a small rural Michigan town, about halfway between uh, Flint and Michigan's capital of Lansing. Um, I grew up in a construction family. Um, my uh, dad has a master's degree in music performance, um, but the family owned a construction company and a summer campground that I grew up across the street from. That's where I spent a good deal of my childhood, and so he was uh, either managing the campground or working on job sites. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just kind of grew up out in the country, tromping around the woods, that kind of thing. Uh, when I was 17, I started hanging out in Flint a little more, and it was kind of my first introduction to the city. I started uh, taking uh, martial arts lessons out there, actually, in this old building on the east side of Flint, which is not a very good part of town. Um, and I kept doing that. Uh, when I was um, started doing uh, journalism at MSU, I was still at that same um, martial arts school, and there was this old... Uh, or you know, former, formerly, it's defunct now, um, alternative paper there called The Uncommon Sense, and I picked it up, I just thought it was the coolest thing, and that was, um, I ended up getting a gig writing with them, and that was kind of my first opportunity to start exploring the city. So it was interesting because uh, I felt, uh, I never felt a deep connection to Flint growing up, even though it was the, kind of the closest city, I actually felt the, the neighboring uh, district of uh, strip malls and whatnot, I used to call that Flint, um, <laughs> when it's very uh, far from it, really. But uh, I didn't, you know, make the connection until later in life that the uh, subdivisions that um, my dad and uncles were, you know, building the roads and laying the infrastructure for, um, were so connected to Flint and General Motors, and that when that economy started tanking, so did the construction business, and that's where that summer campground came from, was uh, needing another project. And so um, it's only been later in life that I started to kind of connect those dots and realize that um, you know I had a stronger connection to the city uh, than I realized growing up. Scott, uh, I think you're describing this era of prosperity that is often referred to in journalistic accounts of the problems of Flint, this era when General Motors uh, employed 90,000 people in Flint. Is that right? Yeah, I can't remember the exact number they employed, but I know it's, um, last time I checked, it's roughly a tenth of that now. And yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing where it's, it's a familiar story from around here, but, um, you know, the, the phrase is, you know, a lot of conversations start with the words, when GM left. And um, for a long time, there was sort of this uh, cliche, or sort of became that over time where people would say, you know, GM's not coming back. We got to figure out what to do. And I found it interesting that I don't hear people say that as often because um, I think that for a long time that was something uh, people around here still had to convince themselves of because that was what the entire town was um, founded upon. And I think 
now it's um, there seems more of an attitude of you know really trying to think about what's next. Um, so yeah, it's uh, and it's an interesting time right now because um, you know I, I, I think I mentioned this in uh, introduction to a book I edited last year about Flint Happy Anyway that uh, there are sort of two current narratives of Flint and they both they they both bother me equally and one is the um, revitalization argument and the other is the, the doom and gloom argument. Um, there are a lot of people who want to be cheerleaders for the city and talk about how great um, lots of things are happening. There are some great things happening. We have a new beautiful farmers market um, downtown. Uh, when I was writing for the Uncommon Sense, was um, you know almost completely shuttered, and now there are lots of cool restaurants and cafes downtown. So there's a lot of good things happening in that small um, area, but there's also a lot of problems still happening in the neighborhood um, or the surrounding neighborhoods. Um, you know, in terms of crime, blight, unemployment, um, poverty. Um, that's not even that's not even considering the water crisis right now. So then um, there are a lot of people who focus only on that and talk about Flint's this place that can never, you know, return to any sort of form of glory. And it's uh, not to get ahead of anything here, but that was one of my reasons for wanting to um, edit a book of essays about the city. It was to show for really the nuanced place that it is because it is, um, it is both of those things and Scott, isn't uh, this era that you're talking about, I assume that you were coming of age in the late 1980s or so, uh, isn't this the era when Michael Moore, I suppose, first became famous uh, by way of his documentary about Flint and uh, the closing of the General Motors plant and his uh, resulting documentary called Roger and Me? Are we talking about the same era? Yeah, that's, it's an interesting video. Um, sometimes I'm still not sure how I feel about it. It certainly put Flint on the map. I think it did um, a good job in some ways of uh, showing Flint's particular brand of, of strangeness in some ways and highlighting some of the issues. Um, when I was at the Flint Journal, uh, my editor, when he had been a reporter, uh, John Foran had um, done a lot of reporting about certain inaccuracies in the film. Um, and there are a lot of people who are upset about the portrayal. There are a lot of people who still celebrate it and celebrate him. Um, there's a really strange, uh, I think, relationship between the city and, um, and Michael Moore. I, see, I meet a lot of people who absolutely love him, and I meet a lot of people um, who uh, hate him <laughs> just as much. So it, it's interesting because, I mean, I think um, I think one thing that, that movie Roger and me did do was help put um, Flint on the map and highlight a lot of the problems that are here um, and I, I, I continually say that you know Flint is a place worth paying attention to because I think that um, what happens in Flint and, and similar Rust Belt cities uh, you know things that have things that happen in this country tend to happen in places like this first and I think that we're uh, a canary in a coal mine in many ways so I think it's I think it's really good that that helps get the city the attention um and I think it, it probably deserves more, but uh, yeah, it, there's a, there's a strange relationship I think between the city and that, and that film. Scott, uh, you mentioned your hometown of Durand is located roughly halfway between Lansing and Flint, and uh, I think I think that places you fairly close to uh, Detroit too. I'm curious how you ended up being more oriented toward Flint instead of Detroit, which is I would say roughly the same distance away. Yeah, 
it's so Detroit's a little bit farther. Detroit's about an hour away, um, whereas Flint was about a half an hour away. Um, but you know, it's a really good question. I think uh, I think it, you know, had circumstances took me to Detroit as a young man, I think it would have been an easy city to, to fall in love with and the culture there. And you know, I occasionally go there. Took the kids to um, a production of The Lion King. Uh, my wife and I a few weeks ago. We you know go to a Tigers game, Detroit Tigers game sometimes in the summer. Um, so I think Detroit's great, um, uh, but in a weird way, um, I had to just sort of uh, fall in love with Flint, which is something I hesitate to say, um, not because it's not true, but also because I don't want to over-romanticize it. I think it's easy for someone like me to say they fall in love with the city when um, I live in a neighboring suburb and I don't have to deal with issues like the water or anything else that a lot of Flint residents do. Um, but I think it's, uh, I think especially in a city that has the kind of problems with Flint, I think it's easier to feel a connection to a place like that because you feel like you're part of um, uh, a group of people that are working toward a greater goal. Um, I think there's this, uh, there's a very, very strong sense of community in Flint. Um, and I don't know, just being there, you know, as a kid, um, you know, this martial arts school, this, you know, building next to a burned out house and across the street from a funeral home that would close down and a elementary school would eventually burn down. Um, that, I mean, it doesn't sound very nice. And if I'd grown up there, I have a friend who did grow up around there and he never wants to go back. Um, but as an outsider coming in, it was something that I just felt like this is something that is much bigger than me and that I'm sort of attached to. Um, my wife and I weren't uh, married at the time, but her, her first house um, was on the south side of Flint and we sort of half lived together and I was in college and me and Lansing had come back to Flint on the weekends and um, you know she had sort of fallen over the city and I don't know it's just uh, it's it's got its own um, you know culture and attitude and it's um, you know can be a very very friendly place um, I go to the Big Beans Cafe on the you know in the historic district of Carriage Town which um, isn't a lot of place a lot of people drive unless they knew it was there but we gotta go there in the morning and uh sort of the morning crew was in there and we tell jokes and talk about politics and make fun of each other and have coffee and um i i wouldn't want to get coffee anywhere else (laughs) you uh after growing up in durand michigan uh you went to michigan state university over in lansing or east lansing i guess uh more formally uh to study journalism uh can you tell us about that decision and why you took up uh being a journalist and where you landed your first job as a reporter yeah i think it actually plays partly into the flint narrative too but um so I did my first year of college at UM Flint, where I teach now. Um, I knew I wanted to write. I took a creative writing class and did well. Um, this is the story I always tell. I went to the UM Flint bookstore and I found this book that was called Great Jobs for English Majors. And I looked through the uh, entire book and um, was still looking for the, the good jobs. I was looking for the one that said someone's going to pay you to go write stuff. And, uh, I didn't see that there. And so um, I ended up going to MSU mostly because I wanted to, um, you know, be away and go to parties and stuff, and they accepted me, and it was a good school, and it was good enough for me when I was 19 years old. Um, and it so happened they had a good journalism program, and somehow I found myself doing that. It might have been a suggestion of my mom. Um, and so I took the first intro to journalism class, which was terrible, because uh, 19-year-olds don't care about the history of the printing press. Um, but I saw journalism as a way to get a paycheck for writing and a way to go out and be curious and talk to people 
find out about things and then get to write about it. So it sounded kind of uh, excellent. And then while I was there, um, I took a class in magazine writing and it was taught by the guy who probably wouldn't want me to say his name uh, on a podcast. So he became uh, like a mentor and he introduced me to the idea of literary journalism, uh, which I think some journalists find pretentious, but uh, it's a term that I actually really like because um, it seemed to be a blend of what was possible through journalism that uh, the literature I'd grown up reading and, and, and liking for the fact that it could look at real things, but also expose sort of the larger underlying ideas and reasons behind them uh, could in fact be done through reporting and narrative nonfiction writing. Um, I was blown away by, by that idea uh, and fell in love with it. And so um, I left college determined to be a magazine writer and I had no idea what that meant and how hard it is and how little money you make and how there are no such thing as uh, staff magazine writers. Um, for the most part. And so I was determined never to work in a newspaper. And uh, in the meantime, the common sense that I talked about, I closed down and I called up the former designer. And I said, you know what, let's, let's start our own. Let's, let's, let's start it. We were gonna kind of model it after the Chicago Reader. And um, I had applied to the Flint Journal, uh, the local newspaper there, uh, just because I felt like I should. And uh, the, the, I was up uh, in Michigan, we say up north to go to northern Michigan um, at a lake. So I was up north, as we say. And uh, I got a call from the Flint Journal saying they would interview me on Monday. It was the exact same Monday that I had uh, planned to start selling ads for the new paper. And I almost didn't go. And um, my wife looked at me like I was crazy and I realized I kind of was. And so it was before we had kids or anything. But uh, yeah, so I went to the interview, um, didn't get the job that time, but they ended up calling me back when another position opened up and I became a community reporter for the uh, neighboring town that I live in now. Um, and so that was my first gig at the Flint Journal. I worked right downtown and ended up uh, liking working for a newspaper more than I thought I would. I ended up covering um, education, uh, some local politics. Um, I left for a brief to get my master's degree and then when I returned to the journal, um, I became the entertainment writer, uh, which kind of morphed into a features writer position. And it was kind of like the uncommon sense all over again, because um, at that point I had a really good relationship with my editors and I just had this freedom to just wander around and write about, you know, whatever I wanted. And in the meantime, um, the, the internet had become our uh, primary medium for sharing information, which at first I was kind of reluctant to latch on to, but then I realized that um, having been told that as newspaper writer by my editors all the time, you're writing too long, your stories are too long, your stories are too long, um, suddenly it didn't really matter anymore. And so I would sort of secretly work on these stories while knocking out the daily grind and um, come back to my editor with a you know 3,000 word feature on um, whatever, a particular bar or um, some history to it or like one of my favorites, these uh, um, a story about these deaf orphans that were buried in Flint's um, oldest cemetery that had gone and were these unmarked graves that this woman finally discovered. Um, it was just, it was great. Um, but unfortunately, the journalism industry is, uh, oh, it is what it is right now. And um, that was when I made the move to teaching. Tell us, uh, Scott, about how you came to be involved with uh, the new. Uh, Belt Publishing Company, which started off a few years ago as Rust Belt Chic Publishing, and uh, ultimately how you came to be the editor of this new anthology about Flint, Michigan, entitled Happy Anyway. 
so uh, when I left the journal, I um, to teach. That was also my opportunity to um, make my first foray into freelance writing. I'd been aware of Bell's Magazine uh, because my friend Gordon Young, um, who wrote a great book about Flint called Teardown, he uh, he had written for them. I thought, oh, that looks kind of cool. And so um, there was a country musician from Flint that I had profiled for the journal. And when I left, I, I pitched the, a longer version of that to Belt, just because I thought there was a lot more to say, and they went for it. And so I wrote a 5,000-word piece on this um, country musician named Whitey Morgan. And that kicked off what was a really good relationship writing for Belt. Um, they wanted, uh, they didn't have a Flint guy, so I kind of became their Flint guy. And um, we kept in touch about a year of that, or even less, maybe. Um, I became more aware of Belt Publishing, um, which was publishing these, among other things, these anthologies of different Rust Belt cities. And I thought Flint should have one. And so I emailed my publisher and I, I said as much. I said, I think, you know, in a more professional version of, I think that we should have a Flint one and I think I should edit it. And I said, okay. And uh, so from there, um, we spent a year working on that. Um, and that was a lot of fun. And I was really happy with everything that I got because again, my goal with the book was to show uh, Flint through these different essays and different points of view, just how nuanced it was. So, um, uh, like my friend Eric Woodyard, uh, a reporter for the Hunt Journal, wrote a piece about um, his best friend who was murdered and what it's like for him, you know, working uh, in the more affluent downtown every day, but, you know, returning home to where he grew up on the north side of Flint, where um, he had dealt with issues of violence and like that every day and kind of living this double life. So stories like that to, um, uh, you know, people who had lots of stories about homes, leaving homes, going back to homes. Today we are talking to Scott Atkinson. He is a professor of English at the University of Michigan, Flint. He is also the new editor of Belt Magazine. You are listening to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauk. Scott, tell us a little bit about how you chose the title for your anthology about Flint. Uh, It's a very catchy title, Happy Anyway. Yeah, you know, so I can't remember when I first thought of it, but I, I, I remember thinking of it and um, and liking it. And just, it was just kind of, uh, you know, one of those writer things where it's these, you know, two words that were kind of rolling around the back of my head. Um, along the way, uh, the Flint water crisis was happening. And my initial goal was not to write about it because um, there were reports for, at the time, there were reporters here all the time and everywhere um, and I didn't want to feel like I felt like enough people were writing about it I felt like the work was being done and I didn't want to feel like I was trying to turn it into um, a freelance check 
So this was before I was editing the magazine, and my editor reached out to me um, and said, you know, we're Belt Magazine. We have to do something on the water crisis. Like, how, you know, to be irresponsible not to, essentially. And, and I agreed with that. So I, I, I set out to look for a story that I thought needed to be told. Um, and, the, and what I thought was getting lost in the mix um, was, I think it was mostly because of what happens when, um, not that it's a bad thing to have journalists come in, but when you, when you don't carry that um, brooded context that a local journalist has, uh, was that the water crisis is absolutely disaster. It should not be downplayed at all. But I think it's also worth acknowledging that um, Flint was in many ways a disaster before that. And I really wanted to find a story that could embody how um, this struggle is, uh, the struggle is not new to Flint. And this is just one more thing that's been heaped on to a lot of people. And so I ended up meeting this guy named uh, Bobby Jackson, Pastor Bobby. So he goes, he runs a small um, uh, homeless shelter on the north side of Flint. And the north side of Flint is sort of known for high crime and blight. Uh, abandoned homes and I said to him um, you know you've, you've been doing this job for a long time helping people and the reason I talked to him was he had gotten on MSNBC I think with Rachel Maddow maybe and then so his entire shelter was just filled with bottled water he was giving to people and I said so now you're the water guy you've been doing all this stuff and now you're the water guy and he leans across his desk and he says to me Scott I've always been the water guy said people have come here because they need to take a shower. People have come here because they can't afford their water because Flint has ridiculously high water rates um, and have their water shut off. So they come here with a couple of five-gallon buckets and I let them fill them up just so they can take some water back home to wash with or whatever else. Um, so I said, I've always been a water guy. And so I went in thinking that um, he would sort of embody this, this element of Flint and he ended up doing that uh, more than I could have thought. And... I also realized he completely embodied the idea and sort of justified my using it for this idea of the title because he's the happiest guy you'll meet. You know, I mean, just everything is a blessing to Pastor Bobby. Um, and so I sort of tried that term out on him in that story and I said that he's, the, he's uh, the kind of happy, the only kind of happy some people can find in Flint, that he's happy anyway. He's happy uh, in spite of it all. And I describe it in the book as, you know, Flint happy, happiness being a... Uh, a uh, hard one or hard earned happiness and earned happiness and um, there were a few people who didn't like the title because uh, I think they misunderstood it um, and I certainly didn't want the, the title to be um, to downplay the issues but uh, at the same time there are a lot of people who you know stay in the city who are living perfectly fine lives in the city and who are still struggling along with the city to make a better place and um you know, in some ways, I kind of see that title as uh, sort of this, you know, middle finger to the problems attitude of, you know, we're going to find a way to be happy anyway, those of us who can. Scott, tell us a little bit about the geography of Flint. Uh, a lot of the listeners here will have heard about Flint and the water crisis in very general terms, but Describe the city of Flint. You have made a couple of references to the north side uh, being uh, the rougher part of the city. You've talked about your wife living on the south side. You've mentioned the carriage district. Give us a, a two-minute 
tour of Flint? What, what would a person see there if they came to visit Flint? And what should they look for? And what are the major uh, uh, areas of the city? So that's a, that's a good question. And um, man, you just asked a, a lecture to do something in two minutes. So I'll do my best here. But uh, <laughs> uh, down, I think the first thing people realize about downtown Flint is that it's small. Um, a friend of mine was here from Houston a long time ago, and he brought his wife from the first time. He was from here, brought his wife back. And she said, when are we going to get there? And he said, we just drove through it. <laughs> um, downtown Flint is about a dozen blocks long. It doesn't widen much. That's something the local businesses want to happen. Um, but, I mean, the truth is, if you park uh, a block in either direction of the main drag of Saginaw Street, um, you don't have to worry about a parking ticket. Um, and so... Downtown is small. Um, Carriagetown is, is a neighboring um, district uh, with a lot of historic homes. Many of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a strange area where there are people who take great pride in their homes, and there are these beautiful, like, tri-colored Victorian homes uh, that might sit next to one that's falling in on itself. Um, and, yeah, so, I mean, it, it's like any city, like, you don't have to, to walk far in any direction to... Um, find uh, some areas that aren't particularly uh, great. North side of Flint is known for, you know, some of the, the rougher neighborhoods. East side is the same way. South side is um, a little better, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't call it necessarily um, particularly affluent. Um, and to me, what, what's interesting is uh, we talk about Flint, you kind of have to talk about Genesee County. You have these outlying suburbs that surround it where a lot of people um, fled as, as times got tough. Um, but what's interesting to me is, um, you know, Flint to me kind of has these spokes that reach out, these, you know, these roads that lead to these other communities. Um, I take my kids every week to a dance class in uh, the surrounding town of Davison, which is a very nice and affluent suburb. And um, sometimes we'll, we will, we'll go to the Flint Public Library and the Flint Farmer's Market for lunch after the dance class on Saturdays. And I, I take... Um, I think it's Davison Road I take back in um, and it's really interesting to drive along that because that to me it's, you know the neighborhoods are certainly struggling but to me what shows the um, the huge problem uh, that Flint deals with is looking at these miles of road that stretch beyond the neighborhoods and you see like strip mall after strip mall after strip mall um, closed down or with one business in it and you realize this is the kind of commerce and population that General Motors, well, well, General Motors once supported when you realize that this is reaching out in every direction from the city. Um, that to me is what um, really highlights that problem in addition to, you know, what's happening in the, you know, sort of the heart of the city around the downtown and the neighborhoods. So, um, so yeah, so the University of Michigan Flint is located right downtown, uh, about Community College, uh, just kind of right around the corner. Uh, we call our college cultural area. Um, that's a beautiful neighborhood. My wife and I were very close to buying a house there and still might when the kids are at school. Um, and so we have our Institute of Arts, which is wonderful. You can walk around most of it for free. I like to go there and work and walk around and look at art when I'm, uh, you know, sick of grading papers or writing. Um, there's an Institute of Music, a lighting auditorium. So there's this, there are these, these, uh, you know, these pockets of greatness. Um, everywhere but it's uh it's kind of always juxtaposed with the city's problems and 
that was much longer than two minutes, so I apologize. <laughs> That's all right. Scott, let's talk about the kind of burgeoning literature on Flint, Michigan. Um, I'm the book editor for the journal Middle West Review, and I asked you to uh, review this new book by Andrew Highsmith entitled Demolition Means Progress. Can you talk a little bit about that book and uh, how it has been received and what you think of it? Sure. I think, uh, first of all, I mean, what a great title, right? Um, and since reviewing it and reading it, um, I've only been connected to Andrew through um, social media, but I, I hope to meet him soon. Um, and I think it's an excellent book. Um, it's uh, it's pretty dense to get through. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty heavy stuff, um, but that is because of the great level of research he brings to it. So I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that it's, uh, it gives you so much to chew on. And what I think uh, is particularly great about that book is that he, he begins it by talking about Flint's so-called golden age. Um, uh, he kind of opens the scene of this big parade when GM had sold its one millionth car, I think it was, some, some sort of milestone car. Um, you know, some milestone of commerce. Um, but what he really explores is prior to GM's economic downfall, prior to a lot of, you know, the white flight we talk about, and the, the city's issues, is that the golden age was, um, was not as golden as we thought, it, as we like to think it was even then, um, particularly because there were several issues of racism manifesting themselves in different ways from, from housing to education. Um, Flint was also known in the 50s and 60s of having one of the most enviable public school systems um, in the country. Um, and, but it was still rife with, uh, with, with problems um, as far as you know, segregation and other issues that, that continued. So I think what he, I mean, the research is um, it's just superb. Um, and it offers the kind of view that I think uh, a lot of people need who are interested in the city and also that a lot of people were, were thankful to see because um, you know more than ever we live in a soundbite culture and Flint like a lot of places and ideas um, is uh, it's far beyond is far beyond soundbites and so I, I know he uh, I missed him but a, a year or two ago he came and, and read and spoke um, at a historic hotel and I talked to the people who were there and it sounded like it was almost just uh, not just a good time but there was this um, attitude of thankfulness I think that I got from talking to people who were there you know um, just being so thankful I think like you said it like all the things that we're not supposed to talk about you know some of the, the, the racial issues and some of the big players in town that we have celebrated and named buildings after um, you know it's not always, uh, it doesn't live up to the myth that we've created, essentially. Scott, what about the uh, book by Gordon Young, Teardown? You mentioned that, and that takes a different approach to uh, growing up in Flint and leaving Flint and trying to return to Flint and thinking about Flint. Can you give people a little thumbnail about that book? Yeah, so I think... uh you know, Gordy's a good friend of mine, Gordon Young, and Teardown um, is part memoir. The subtitle is Memoir of a Vanishing City, and it's part memoir, part history of the city. Um, so it gets into a lot of issues um, that Highsmith does as well. But it's also the story of Gordy, who grew up in Flint and then moved to San Francisco, and he had started this blog that exists to this day, celebrating his 10th anniversary, as a matter of fact, um, and uh, called the Flint Expatriates. And he found that there was this 
this big community of people who still had an affinity for the city even if they didn't live there or had no attention to it again. And um, he sort of constantly, uh, you know, toyed this idea of, you know, should I go back or is it worthwhile going back? And he had written for the New York Times about some of his experiences going back. And the memoir starts off this idea of maybe he, maybe he should go there and buy a house and where he rents it out or just fixes it up and sells it or, you know, he, he's not real clear on his goal. Um, and so he weaves his own story of the attempt to, to come back, at least in some way, and have some more tangible connection to the city um, with the, the city's history. And I think it's something a lot of people can relate to because, again, in Happy Anyway, what was a common theme was this idea of home, uh, people who had chose to stay in their homes, people who had... Um, left their homes, what that means, or come back to find out what they've done or had their homes broken into and seen their, their valuables um, uh, taken and, uh, and just kind of what that all means. And so I think he really touched on this thing that, uh, I, and as I'm learning as an editor of Belt, it's common throughout Rust Belt cities, this idea of um, of leaving for um, a multitude of reasons, whether it's just to get out or job opportunities, what have you, but also feeling the strong uh, connection to the place that, you know, maybe only, you only realize in retrospect really helped shape you. You have been listening to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauk. Our guest today has been Scott Atkinson. Scott is a professor of English at the University of Michigan, Flint, and Scott is also the new editor of the uh, of the recently created magazine Belt Magazine, which focuses on life in Rust Belt cities in the Midwest. Thank you again for joining us, Scott. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.